Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 288. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 288 you're listening to. My guest today is Jens Bogren, who is a Swedish record producer, mixer, and recording engineer. He's worked on albums by Opeth, Catatonia, Sepultura, The Ocean, Between the Buried and Me, as well as a little bit of mastering from Miss Taylor Swift, believe it or not. Yeah. And we have a fantastic discussion from his studio in Sweden. So Jens Bogren coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about habits. All right. So, you know, if you're in a boat and you're just in a straight line heading somewhere, and if you just turn the boat just ever so slightly to, you know, a few degrees to the right or a few degrees to the left, that boat is going to wind up in a radically different place than where it would have if it had gone the original path straight. So that principle applied to your life with your habits really can have a big impact. And a lot of this, of course, is inspired by the the fantastic book Atomic Habits, which I will link to in the show notes, which I encourage you to check out. The idea is, is if you make small changes in your habits, you're going to wind up in a radically different place over time. You know, it may take a while, but the compound effect of those daily changes in habits certainly can affect you long-term, for better or for worse. Hopefully those habits that you instill are are good habits. For a period of time there, I was getting up at 5, 5.30, and that was working out really well for me. I kind of slipped out of that habit. Coronavirus kicked in and everybody, you know, my wife and I are both working from home. The kids are homeschooling. You know, when that all started, I just started to sleep in. I started to get up at like 6.30, then 7, then 7, you know, it basically it snowballed to like at one point 8.30 in the morning. I know many of you were like, oh my God, that's, you know, that's the earliest I could ever get up. And I understand that. We all have our different clocks that tick differently and different, you know, things we do in life that cause us to get up at different times. So, you know, no judgment there. But for my life, 8.30 was just radically too late to be in bed. One of the things that I recently started doing again is getting up early. And I thought, why make it 5.30? Why make it 5? Let's go for it. Let's go for 4.45. So for the past week, I've been getting up at 4.45 in the morning, make a cup of coffee, head outside to the backyard. We've got uh, kind of an outdoor couch and uh, umbrella with lights built into it. It's like little LED lights. Turn that on, bring a yellow notepad out with me and just start brain dumping. What am I doing today? What's on my agenda? What am I planning for for the future? What are the things I want to get done? And what I did, in fact, by doing that is start myself on a habit of steering the ship just ever so slightly to the right or to the left, because that seems to affect everything else that happens during the day in a positive fashion. And as I record this, it's a Saturday. I even did it this morning on a Saturday. I know that's the day you're supposed to sleep in, right? Well, I didn't do that. 
what ultimately I chose to do was take the time that I was unproductive. 8.30, 9 o'clock, that's when I just start to sit in front of the computer and maybe I'm just staring at YouTube videos or checking email and just really not doing much of anything, just goofing off on the computer. What I decided to do was shift that time that I want to be productive, which I'm not being in, the, in those hours, and move it to, the, to a different part of the day. I started to go to bed at 8.30, 9 o'clock, get a good night's sleep. Maybe I go to bed at 10 at the latest, and then boom, 4.45, I am out of the bed. And then I don't have to make the bed because my wife is still in bed, and our rule is, is last person out has to make the bed. So I'm the first person out, get the coffee going, get my brain firing on all cylinders and have a few cups of coffee and write down all the stuff that I want to tackle. So I'm not asking you all to get up at 445 in the morning, but what I am asking you to do is really look at the habits that you have and evaluate them and figure out what's going to work for you. How can you improve the system of your habits? And then, of course, I'm going to link to this book, Atomic Habits, which really inspired a lot of this uh, a while ago. So that's it. That's my rant on habits, and I hope it influences you and helps you out in steering the ship in the right direction. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might've met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button, at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, 
and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Jens Bogren here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Jens, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. You are talking to us from Orebru in Sweden. More or less, yes. And that's about as good as I'm going to get on the pronunciation of the city. So <laughs> thank you for your, your patience there. For the listener who doesn't know who you are and what you do, could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I am a producer, engineer, mastering guy, mixing engineer out of Sweden. I guess I 20 years ago or something, I got sort of caught in the metal scene. So um, that's where I've been stuck ever since, basically. So I'm working with any type of heavy music, from heavier rock to the utterly most extreme metal music out there, I suppose. Did you set out to get involved in metal? Well, I've always listened to some heavy music from very early age, but I suppose when I started out with audio engineering and later production, I can't say that metal was something that I was particularly into. I come from a little different musical background, perhaps. I did some some bands, like local bands in Urbu back in early 2000, and they were recognized by a guy called Don Svane, who is like a Swedish producer, a musician, a legend a little bit. Mm. He uh, used to be in a band called uh, Edge of Sanity, which was one of the first like death metal bands that combined clean singing with uh, grunt vocals, mm -hmm. growl. And uh, he also produced some early work from the Swedish band Opeth, in Catatonia, for example. And he heard the stuff that I've been doing because he was working at the local music store in Örebro. And he liked it, and he recommended me to some bands that he worked with. So I got to work with Catatonia from Stockholm, which I've never heard of at the time. But they were pretty happy with, with my work and with an, that album, an album called Viva Emptiness, that was like 2002, perhaps. Mm -hmm. I started to get some international recognition. Suddenly I had emails from Italian bands in my inbox and that kind of thing. So I basically went from doing only local stuff, Swedish stuff, you know, everything from gospel to, to classical to jazz, rock, metal as well, into doing like international clients and only metal bands. <laughs> so from, from that point, I've been stuck, like I said. <laughs> <laughs> or, or pigeonholed in that role as a metal guy. Yeah, I mean, I used to complain about it a little bit, like, I want to work with all kinds of music, but I've stopped, you know, it, it, it's a solid business and I enjoy it a lot. So I guess over the years, I've also learned how to appreciate all kinds of metal. So uh, these days, I, I'm probably not the guy to do a hip hop album or a gospel album anymore. Our mutual friend Jay pointed out to me, though, that in spite of doing all this metal, 
You have a mastering credit with Taylor Swift. Oh, that's correct. I, I mastered her live movie, 1980, 1980, 1980 I think it's called. Yeah, it was like that feature of Apple for like six months or something. Their main feature in Apple TV and iTunes. So yeah, I have this friend, Andrew Scarth, who used to be active with bands like Skunk and Nancy, for example, as mm-hmm. a producer. So, and he also did like Tina Turner in the 80s. Very good guy. <laughs> and I got to know him when he did a band called, Swedish band called Lambretta, in my studio actually, like 15 years ago. And uh, we became friends and he started to work for Live Nation with their live recording kind mm. of thing. And that's how I got introduced to the team that were doing the uh, Taylor Swift live thing. So I did the stereo and 5.1 mastering for, for that album slash movie. Huh. What a, what a departure from your normal routines of metal. Yeah, I guess. But but on the mastering side, we actually do, me and Tony, Tony Lindgren that works here with solely mastering tasks, we do all kinds of music, basically, when it comes to mastering. So I'm to understand that you weren't originally from, from Orobru and that you only came there because there was a studio available. That's correct. I was in my very early 20s, like 20 or 21, and at the time I was working as a teacher at a school, which was also a little bit by accident. I was supposed to teach teach a class there. It was right after my own education, my own school. And I was a, well, top student, if you don't mind me saying so, and uh, (laughs) they wanted me to, to teach a class. And two weeks before the semester started, I got a call like, well, the main teacher, he jumped ship. Do you want to take over? It's like, well, yeah, of course. So I did. So for two and a half years, full time, I was teaching students that were basically like two years younger than myself. So that was a really, really good education for me as well, because I really had to learn what I was supposed to teach. But after that time, or like two years in, I started to feel that, okay, this was great. But if I stay here, I'm going to stagnate. I need to try my wings (laughs) for real. Because I was at the time on the side, I was starting my company and I was doing all kinds of freelance studio and a lot of live and theater sound. So then I saw this ad online, it was pretty early days of internet still, about a studio that was for sale in Örebro, which was a city like four hours from my hometown. I'd never been there, but I thought, how bad can it be? So I went up, had a look at the studio, and I fell in love, you know, it was an old school proper studio built inside a barn, big, big, lush, beautiful recording space, bedrooms for artists to stay there, and big analog console, big analog 24-track machine, all that kind of thing. So I went to the bank back home saying that I have found this brilliant place and I need to borrow some money. (laughs) (laughs) And they sort of laughed at me. But, you know, I I didn't let myself be beaten down by that. So I approached the owner again and I was able to find a, a lease for the place. In my head, everyone wanted that place. But in reality, he probably didn't have anyone who was <laughs> able to, to take over that studio. I basically quit my job, took the little things I had and moved up to Urbu and I lived in that studio for one and a half years and didn't know anyone. Luckily for me, there were still some like stray clients to the studio that wanted to, to come there to record. I didn't know anything about marketing or I didn't know anything other than some audio engineering and the fact that I wanted to be a, a producer. <laughs> 
So I really worked myself from the very bottom and I caught a break. I was talented enough, I suppose. I worked really, really, really hard and did everything. I didn't say no to anything, you know, no prestige or anything. And I caught a break with meeting Don Svanu and being recommended to some Oh, okay. Some That's the connection with Catatonia that eventually led to Opeth. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So when you got a hold of this studio, you managed to get a lease for it. Yeah. And that would allow you to pay monthly to own it or just rent it from the owner? I just rented it from him. And eventually I was sort of forced to make a decision whether I should buy it or not. And we agreed that I would buy the equipment that I needed and continue to rent the actual building. And eventually, like eight years in or something, I was forced to make another decision whether I should buy the building, which was an old barn, or if I would do something else. So at that time, I actually decided to instead build a new studio, still in Urbu, because, well, I started to like it here. So the last, like, 11, 12 years, I've been running in my current studio here, so which is next to my house. So I actually built a house and a studio next to the house. Which was great as well, especially some years back, because I have three kids, and it's I've only gathered them or created them during these years. So it was really good for me to have the studio next to my house because that way I was able to run in and get some work doing. And if my wife needed help with whatever, I could run in and help her and that kind of thing. So is that studio, the one you're talking to me from now, is that Fascination Street? It, it always been Fascination Street. Okay. I needed a name, right, uh, <laughs> back in the day. And I remember I was actually discussing this with, with the guitar player from Catatonia. Like, you need to call your studio something cool. It's like, <laughs> because back back then it was called Studio Cooling, which was from the last name of the, of the original owner. But I needed to create my own brand, so to speak. So that's when we came up with it. It was actually him coming up with the name Fascination Street Studios because both me and him are big fans of The Cure, the band, and they have this song called Fascination Street. So yeah, it was just something we came up <laughs> came up with. So, But I've been running under that name even though I, I moved location. I'm also about to move location a second time this summer, actually, and it's still going to be called Fascination Street Studios. It doesn't really matter where I'm located. So the studio you built next to your house has the ability to track full bands and have accommodations for bands to, to sleep? Yeah, more or less. Uh, here I have a pretty small recording room, but I also have a studio in Stockholm that I have together with another guy that has a big live room where I go for, to record drums usually. Because mm -hmm. it's the metal business. Usually you record one person at a time, even though you have the whole band up while tracking drums, perhaps, you still end up redoing everything except the drums, basically. So what I usually do is that I go to Stockholm, pull a really long houred week with a band there, and then we move to Urubu and do all the rest for the album. I gotcha. So the new place you're building, I was told was just a dedicated metal focused studio. Is that, is that accurate? <laughs> no, it's not accurate, but uh, that's how it's going to be for sure. <laughs> okay. 
it's not like that I would turn anyone down. But it's a private studio. I mean, it's not like I run a studio. I don't like running a studio, if you know what I mean. I like working with music and then producing and mixing. And then I need a studio. So it's not like I'm a studio manager that ran out my studio. And that's the same with this new place. It's, it's going to be a really big place with three con- real control rooms, two recording rooms, five bedrooms, two extra recording suites, movie room, and all that kind of thing. But it's still going to be private just for our own productions. Where is that going to be located? It's still in Urbu, but okay. on the other side of the city. But yeah. Is that going to be a building built from the ground up or are you taking an it existing is. building? Yeah. No, I've been working on this for three years now from when I first started to plan it. So this almost killed me, but uh, I'm still standing, <laughs> luckily, because <laughs> I've been running my operation as usual, but then I had to build the studio as well. And I've been having loads of contractors, but I've been the one planning for everything from ventilation to, to heating to... Uh, acoustic design how things are supposed to be and then i of course took took help yeah it's been a long journey and building something ground up like that especially in a very very regulated country like sweden we have to deal with the authorities about everything you know the fact that you have five bedrooms and then it's suddenly a hotel class and then you need a certain fire and that kind of rules and regulation that come into play and that you need to to follow so basically it has been like two or three times the the expense and two or three times the time <laughs> to build it than i thought but now it's it's almost there at what point did you decide that that was necessary to build another studio and have it be that elaborate? A good question. If I reverse the tape a little bit, when I decided to not buy the old barn and instead build a new studio next to my house, it was more about life decision than than anything else. Like, can I see myself producing bands, being in a recording situation for, for another 10, 15, 20 years? And I was at a time where I felt that I'm losing the spark a little bit. I need to do something to find it again. So I built the studio next to my house, a little more focused towards mixing and mastering, sort of build myself away from, from work, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And that worked for like one year, but then I realized that, shit, I need a, <laughs> I need a bigger room to record my drums. So uh, eventually uh, I got this, this other studio instead. Well, first another one and then eventually in Stockholm. But at least I didn't have to be a studio manager for that studio. So this other guy called David Castillo, very, very good engineer, producer as well. The metal scene, he's running the daily operation in that studio. So I can be here in my little smaller, more manageable place. But then uh, a few years back, I realized that, okay, it's not so fun going to Stockholm all the time, recording Mm. drums. I have this guy, Tony, that I told you about doing mastering. And we were basically working shift here like i start at eight in the morning and he comes in after when i'm done and it kicks in with with mastering work and then we're running like 24 7 basically in this room so i needed a new place or a new mastering room for him that's how that started so i was looking around for somewhere to to build a mastering room rent some space in urbrew or possibly stockholm but then I did my calculations and I realized that uh, it's really expensive to, to rent. Perhaps I should build uh, mm. instead. So I started to look at that and said, oh, well, not so expensive. I can do this. Then, I don't know, it's just my 
persona that started to to grow the ideas but well if i you know if if i'm actually gonna build perhaps i should just build it a little bigger and then <laughs> later hmm, perhaps what if i build it a little bigger and hmm I'm going to want to work in this new studio. Perhaps I need to build it a little bigger. <laughs> so that resulted in actually in me discussing with the wife, like, okay, so I'm going to build this big studio. I don't think we can live in this house anymore because then we have this studio for <laughs> next to our house for no use. So we're actually, in two weeks, we're going to move to a new house that's going to be close to the new studio. So it's like a big life change here. Wow, there's a lot of moving parts of your life right now. Yeah, it is. It's it's been crazy. But but basically I'm I'm seeing it this way. The new studio is like this is the last studio that I will ever build. <laughs> and uh here I can gather the people that works for me. We are four people right now in the company here in Örebro plus David in Stockholm. And now we've been yeah, a little scattered around here in the city. I'm renting another studio in Örebro as well for two guys. So now Ultimately, we're going to be same location, trying to run it as a more professional company with Monday morning meetings and that kind of thing. So. <laughs> very adult. Oh, very adult. I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so does that mean the Stockholm studio is going to be a part of that or are you going to get rid of that? Well, I'm not sure what's going to happen there exactly, but uh, I guess I'm just going to go into some sort of passive ownership mm because David is running his own operation there, filling it with his own clients and, and all that. So we're good friends and collaborate. Do you in the building in Stockholm? No, there we're just rent, renting the space. Okay. That studio is very nice. It used to be owned by the band The Hives. Do you know yeah, the band? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And a producer called Pelle Gunnefeldt, a Swedish really good producer. So it has some some history there, which is nice. And there are these old EMT plates on the in the attic and that kind of thing. So it's still nice. I might still go there every now and then. What are you going to do with the house and the studio that you're in now? Are you going to sell that? Yeah, that's a good question because you you mentioned our our mutual friend Jay, right? Yeah. The thing is. It's not so easy to sell a house and a, with a studio, right? I mean, it's pretty easy on the market, at least here, to, to sell because put the house out and people will come and they said, oh, nice extra building. Here I'm going to have my muscle cars. Or, oh, nice, here we can make a movie room or <laughs> something like that. But uh, it's not so easy to find someone who would actually treasure it as, as a studio. But I did find a few people, one musician in Sweden, like a pretty famous musician that, that wanted to have it as a studio. And I thought, okay, that's great. That's perfect. And then there was this other guy from uh, San Francisco that uh, approached me uh, about it. And that was Jay. I didn't know about him at all. So he contacted me and he saw some Facebook thing that I have done in a producer group about me selling my house in the studio. So he came over and he fell in love with the studio and then the house. And then we started to talk about possible collaboration because he's very talented, both as a musician and a producer and human being <laughs> in general, I would say. Yeah. So, so that's that's another venture that's coming up. I don't know if he told you about Yeah, the... he did. He, he mentioned uh, Bogren Digital. Exactly. Yeah. That's been like a little bit the back of my head for, for the last 10 years or so about the prospect of trying to do something like that in terms of 
producing some products like digital products, perhaps drum samples or impulse responses or plugins that I thought was missing from the market or something like that. You know, these ideas that you get, crazy ideas like building a stupidly big building or <laughs> starting a new company. Uh, I also have a sport fishing company, by the way. <laughs> you know, I was going to ask you about that. Uh, I have to understand fishing is a big attraction for you. Yeah, absolutely. The thing is, I grew up with music as my driving force in life or my big hobby, you know, playing the guitar, playing in bands, listening to music, knowing all about the members in different various bands and all that kind of thing, you know, a fan. But once I started to really work with this, that is a big, how would you put it in English, like a sadness for me, the fact that I've lost my big hobby, the music, to work, because that is what happens usually. When you make your hobby into your profession, then you don't have a hobby anymore, right? Right. So that's a word of advice or, or a word of caution for anyone who thinks about this, pursuing the dream of becoming whatever within music. You might end up not having a hobby anymore or, or a big passion or interest. So for me, I needed to find some something else. So I looked at some point back to my childhood before music, and that was fishing, actually. Fishing hmm. with my grandpa in the ocean, fishing with my friends, all the thousands of lakes in Sweden. So I started to get a little bit interest in that. And since, as you may have noticed, I cannot do anything just a little bit. I need to go all in. <laughs> I started to get boats and equipment and I started to learn everything about uh, catching pikes and xander and uh, salmon, <laughs> all that kind of thing. <laughs> so then I realized, okay, so this was really fun, but I don't really have the time for it. And the wife is complaining and uh, suddenly we start to get a lot of kids, <laughs> more or less planned. So I had the idea that what if I would try to create doing the mistake once more, <laughs> make, turning my hobby into the business. So I started this sport fishing company to be able to sell like packages of come here, have your album mastered and go out on the lake with me to fish, <laughs> that kind of thing. So I cannot say that, uh, that it has been a great success, but because <laughs> in reality, you don't really have time to do that, even though the clients might be uh, thrilled to do it, you end up, it's like, yeah, well, we would need to spend the time on the actual album instead. But it's something that happens from time to time that I enjoy doing. So do you, do you have people other than people who are working with you on a record go out with you and go fishing? On occasion, I've been doing some, I mean, I'm not marketing that or anything. Okay. It's on occasion that there would be something coming in. I was lucky enough to actually be able to guide this young guy on his 17th birthday together with his two big brothers that bought him this package as a present to go out and fish and we went to this uh, this big lake in sweden he was able to catch his northern pike of, of his life basically on that trip so that kind of thing is is cool we'll see when i when i grow older i'm hoping to pick up this sport fishing venture a little <laughs> bit more seriously that's going to be like your main business at some point yeah we'll see we'll see <laughs> i love fishing but oh man i get motion sickness like nobody's business all right yeah uh, that's horrible. My father-in-law, I don't want to say he tricked me, but he, he convinced me to go deep sea crab fishing. Mm -hmm. We live outside of San Francisco, so we went under the Golden Gate Bridge out into the Pacific Ocean, and oh my God, 
a trip that I will never, ever forget as I oh, pa- yeah. passed out and threw up so many times that I couldn't throw up anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but to be fair, that that is very different because that happened to me as well twice. Once in Mexico, me and my wife went there before we had kids and uh, I saw this fishing. They were a- advertising about fishing trips and I just had to go. Same thing. I was literally, I wanted to die the whole day. <laughs> I wanted to throw myself out in the water and just get rid of this motion sickness thing. And just this uh, this autumn, actually, I was in San Francisco with my family and we were heading down the Highway 1 down to LA. And on the way, they had prepared a present for me because it was my 40th birthday around that time. So that I was going to go on this fishing trip. It was in Monterey, I think. Yeah. So I went out and that was the same thing. Exactly the same thing happened. There were like 25 people on this boat. The only one that was completely dead (laughs) was me (laughs) hanging (laughs) over the rail for the duration. And it took me like two days to recover from that. It was horrible. So it is quite different. When you go out on the ocean, big boat, it's much worse. If you go out on like a small boat, smaller lake, you will never get that sort of motion. Yeah. I will agree there. I've been out with my father-in-law on his his boat in the Great Lakes in the Michigan area and that's oh, yeah. been that's been okay, but oh my god, going out on the ocean. I'll never do that ever again. Nah, it is different. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk to you about your career in general. Have you planned this at all or have you just reacted as as the success has come? Yeah, that is a very good question. I would say that I've been a noob at everything when it comes to I haven't had any like business mind I think I do today somewhat but I've learned it's been 20 years of of learning how you're supposed to do or how I should have done it (laughs) more or less so today if I would relive my life I would do everything much much smarter in terms of when would it be a good thing to just like offer a production for free, for example, just to to catch this band and all that kind of thing. So I, I haven't done anything smart in my life, <laughs> more <laughs> or less. So it's been chaos theory, basically. I've been, been lucky and I've been just working hard, but I couldn't have done things so much better, really. Well, I mean, to, to be building this new studio at the level that you're building it and doing all the stuff you're doing, it, it seems that there's some business decisions that you've made that have been good decisions, probably with in regards to money and saving, et cetera, I would assume. Is that accurate? Have you, as an audio professional, have you been responsible with your money? No, I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I could have done everything much better. No, but I guess I've been a little bit lucky. I remember that the year that we built our house, for example, mm-hmm. this was the year before the big financial crisis in 2008. And after that, the banks got restricted. But we got lucky to find a bank and a person there who believed in us because my wife didn't even have a, a solid job. She was just coming out of university. And I, you know, being a, running my own business, my salary had been everything from fairly okay to like nothing, all depending on what I needed to, to buy to the company or what I thought I needed to buy anyway. So it was, it was you know, pretty... Uh, chaos. But but uh, we found this person who believed in us at the bank. Then I just happened to have my best year so far, production-wise. So we actually could afford doing what we did with the building construction. So it's, that has just been a series of luck, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> well, you know, a mindset as well that we are going to 
do this. But but the last couple of years has been a little different. I, I've been a little bit more aware. I also knew that if I was going to build this building, I knew what the banks would want to see, etc. So I had a few years where I really trimmed the fat, nothing unnecessary. You know, I need to have good numbers everywhere to be able to, to show this to the bank, to, to get the loans that I needed to do this undertaking with the construction. I can't say that I've been super careful with things. I, that's also the thing. You get into this profession because you you love it, right? Mm-hmm. And then you think, oh, oh, I really need that compressor. And I, oh, I really need to have that and that. You don't think as a, as a business person. I started to do that much later, but in the beginning, just thought, oh, I have, I have some money on my account. Let's. I need to buy this compressor. It's always that compressor, isn't it? There's always a compressor to buy. <laughs> Yes, especially back then. Now everything is so much software, right? So you spend money on useless software instead. Exactly. <laughs> but, <laughs> but at some point I started to, to realize a little bit that, okay, I, I need to, to think a little bit more what I do with, with, with the money. And any regular company would, would see that compressor as an investment, right? And can you get a return out of this investment or not? Yeah. That's not how the usual producers see think about money i think so but they but they should they should do it <laughs> hey our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for android which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from apple and spotify edit release metadata upload new releases and a host of other features and remember wca listeners get 30 percent off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. Have you ever found the record keeping of of finances a challenge? Well, I've been talking about my trail of luck. (laughs) I've been lucky enough to have a good friend, or my best friend actually, that is an accountant. He's been helping me a lot with keeping the, the papers in order, basically. I'm a little bit the nerdy kind of guy. I also learned that from him. So these days I'm I'm doing all my bookkeeping myself, for example, which, yeah, it has turned out to be easier because if you come with a company like this with a lot of foreign clients and PayPal accounts and all that kind of thing, mm-hmm. it's a little more tricky to keep track of compared to like a hairdresser or something. I always found that any external accountant will fuck things up, basically. So I prefer doing it myself. Determining what you charge clients 
I'm sure over the years that's been a work in progress because when you're working with some of these bands like Sepultura or Opeth or anybody like that, do they come to you and just say, we want to do a record, we want you to produce and record and mix, and this is what we have to spend? Or do you say, this is what I charge? That's a very good question. I think this is probably the question that most people think about when they are trying to get into the business. Like, how does that work? It is really different. I would say that perhaps 50% of the time there is a fixed budget. Like, we have this, can you do it? And there might be some sort of negotiation about it. Sometimes you would also have to state a figure yourself, and then you need to base that on something, right? Like, what is your worth? And that's not so easy. And you also have to consider the fact that the whole business has sort of imploded the last 10 years when it comes to especially the record budgets. These days, the, the big money is gone, at least from the little special genre bands that I'm working with. So I would say that more and more has gone into mixing only for myself, mm -hmm. and fewer bands can afford like a full production. They usually have to try to solve it themselves somehow. But when it comes to some bands that still value a production and want to spend money on it, we just you know come to an agreement about it. I used to have a, a manager, or I still sort of do, I think working with him has also taught me how to think in terms of pricing and that kind of thing. I remember that when I first met him, he was the manager of Opeth. It was obvious that I charged way too little working with Opeth the first time. And then he asked if he wanted me to have him as his manager. And when I said yes, the first thing he said, okay, you need to up your prices. <laughs> so <laughs> that was really good for me at a, some point to see the way he negotiated with other bands about my fee, for example. And also how flexible it, it sometimes needs to be. Yeah, And sometimes you also need to make that estimate, like this band can afford this, but it's good for you to do this band. Then you have to look at your schedule, what else, what other options do I have, that kind of thing. But I would say for me, some of the bands that have paid me the most, it would have been still a really good business decision to work with them, even if it was for free, basically, because some of these key bands in my discography, they have given me so many other jobs around it, like doing the next live album and the next remastering of some old album. And more importantly, all the other bands that will send you emails and they want to sound like. Oh, I'm sure. We love what you did on this record. Can you do that with us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's such a classic. <laughs> it is how it works, really. And I've also noticed that the quality of your work is, of course, important, but it is less important than which names that you are attached with. People will hear that, okay, oh, he worked with that band. Oh, great. Then we want to work with him. That is more important. I would say that bands, most of them, would not have like a proper sit down listening to showreels and figure out exactly who would be a smart, what kind of elements in that production and that mix would be a smart move for us to have in our mix or how creative is this dude, you know, can he bring us forward? I never saw a band think like that, but they should. They are like me 20 years ago, not knowing anything. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I've also noticed, if you do a showreel and you send that to a band, they start to think about which songs they like. 
Mm. It's like the bands and the songs that they like, that's what they think sound good. If you peel off the shells and just see the psychology behind showreels, that is how it is. And I've learned that much through my manager as well, that has been the one sitting there. He see how these bands <laughs> think and, and works. And that's something for, for everyone to consider. If you put a showreel together, don't necessarily try to choose the best sounding stuff that you have. Try to <laughs> try to choose the best songs and the biggest names. That that's what's important <laughs> for a showreel. That's great it advice, is. actually, because <laughs> as you say, that's how musicians are processing those those showreels. Yeah, yeah. You know, working with a band like I was watching the video diaries of the making of I can't remember which Sepultura record it was, and it was really focused on the drummer. As I watched him work through his parts, I thought the involvement when you're doing a production like that on a metal album seems intense all the way around. And it's it's a big involvement. Making a record is a big involvement when you're when you're producing. So how does that work with a work-life balance with your family? Those are long days, intense days. How do you manage that to keep your artists happy and keep your family happy? That is the hardest part. At least for me, it really has been. Because my wife, she works like full-time. She's not a staying-home mom. We don't have those in Sweden, basically. She thinks that it would be better if I worked at the post office than uh, <laughs> doing this. I guess what I've done is that I try to limit my production time a year. So the way I can do that, it also goes pretty well with the market. Like I said, that I get more requests for mixing and mastering than I do for productions because so few bands can afford a production anyway. So I try to do between one and three full productions a year and the rest I do mixing and mastering. And while doing mixing and mastering, I keep office hours. I start at eight and I stop at five, at least in theory. Then I might have to squeeze in some extra hours here and there, but that's how I do it. And when I produce and you get into this like six weeks of, of tracking, I try to do a little bit the same. For example, I try to plan that we have some days off and then I try to engage my mother actually to come up because she's not living in the city. We don't have any folks in the city, no help with the children and stuff. So I try to arrange that a little bit as well so she can come up a few days here and there to make that a little easier on my wife. Then I try to start recording at eight, which is not so popular all the time with my bands, but uh, <laughs> most of them agree. Most of them would actually find it to be pretty refreshing. Like, yeah, we're getting good stuff here in the morning. When I do vocals, I usually try to stop at five, six perhaps, and then we do perhaps another session at night or the opposite that I work with something else until the afternoon. And then I take a break, go and get the kids from school, do dinner, kids off to bed. And then we do a vocal session late evening or something like that. So I try to organize my days to work with family life a little bit, but it's always pretty hard. I'm always completely tired after production. The psychology that one can use in the studio to help people get the results that they want as far as you know you can push somebody you can lead somebody you can encourage somebody how have you developed your sense of of psychology with working with a band that you're producing and how do you know when you're pushing too hard ultimately production work 
is a lot of psychology. I have this mentor that helped me a lot in my early days when I was in school. And he used to say that recording is 80% psychology and, and the rest is the tech stuff. It's just something that's there, basically. And I do, do agree with him completely about that. Once you know all the technical stuff, you don't really have to think about that. That's just backbone things. Mm-hmm. And then it's all down to what to record and, and how to record it and how to, to guide and, and performance produce, basically help getting the best artistic performance on tape. And that's, that's very different. It's not so easy to answer. Some people really can take a lot of push. Mm-hmm. and appreciate that, whilst others, you might feel immediately that they are very sensitive to any sort of criticism. And then you need to find your path with that particular person or how to work out. Because some people, they get into blockages. Like if they feel that there's a bad or negative vibe or anything, they will not perform well at all. That's a big part of the art of being a producer, I would say. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it comes through experience, hopefully. And the better you are as a people person, I would say that probably the easier you have being a producer. That's also a thing. In the end, of course, the sound, the result will be a big part of it. But whether people come back to you or not, is definitely going to be a lot about how they felt you being as a person towards them in the studio. I've seen some pretty poor producers producing bands and bands and bands and bands because they are fantastic people <laughs> in the studio. Same with some pretty poor drummers touring with bands because they were the funniest person in the, oh. <laughs> in the t- tour van, right? Now, you have people working with you or working for you. Is that accurate? They're working for you. They're, they're working for your companies. Yes. Okay. So as far as leadership is concerned and making sure people are achieving the goals that everybody wants them to achieve for the companies, do you have any inspiration that you use to try to lead people? Or is it also a work in progress that you're trying to figure this out and, and make the best decisions possible. My biggest flaw is probably that I, don't, that I don't want to be a boss. I don't like being a boss. I mean, I have people that works for me and I've seen potential in them and they wanted to do this more than anything else. And they are putting in a lot of effort into it. I sometimes wish that I could be more of an inspirator and guiding them, helping them. Which I do in a way, because of course I I help them and I give them feedback and all that kind of thing. And they develop and they are all very, very good on their own these days. But my leadership has probably been too much filled with just an overall sense of stress and uh, having to meet the deadlines and too much work for everyone (laughs) kind of thing. Which is the way that I've always been doing it, working too much and everything. So... Yeah, I'm not going to be the boss of the year, that's for sure. But uh, hopefully they, <laughs> they will not come back at me with a knife one day. So I always find it hard to delegate tasks to people because there's something that I want done, but then I think, well, I'll just do it because I want it done right. And I have a particular way I like to have it done. Just handing over editing to another person for this podcast alone was a big leap of faith. And fortunately, Anne-Marie Plo, who does the first round of editing for the show, does a great job. But I've always found that to be a challenge, especially working in the studio with people. It is, absolutely. 
I've had over the years, perhaps there have been like six people or something working for me. And the ones that I have now have been with me for quite a long time. But if you ask Linus, Linus Corneliuson, who is doing a lot of mixing on his own now, but he used to be only doing assisting work for me, like editing. He's a very, very musical person. He's very, very good with Pro Tools. But the first few years... I was tough on him because he would never be able to do something that I was happy with because it's not like I have the absolute blueprint, but I have my blueprint, right? As a producer, I, I know what I... No, I don't want the drums to be edited like this. You are pushing that too much. That is too much edited there. It's too out of time. It needs to be exactly like this. So I had to, you know, redo, 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 give feedback back and forth. It took a few years and now... Everything that he does is usually very, very good. So you reached a point where he started to think like me, <laughs> I think, <laughs> which is what, what I needed. If he was going to work for me, he needed to think like me. Yeah. And the same with, with Tony, with mastering. And he's still super nervous every time I'm coming in to listen to something. If I come in, open the door, he immediately press stop. He don't want me to listen to anything <laughs> he's doing. These days I trust him completely, you know, I don't have to listen to it. But he's also had a tough time having me as uh, the teacher <laughs> and boss, I think. So, yeah, it has not been an easy ride for, for my guys, but they grew up to being really good at what they're doing. So perhaps that's worth something at least. As time goes along and budgets drop, more of your work, is centered around mixing and mastering. Do you find it annoying to have people with you in the room when you mix? Yeah, absolutely. I never do that. I would never have anyone in while doing mixing. I mean, I get disturbed by anything. Just someone standing like one and a half meter from me is like, hmm, I got a comb filtering going here. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want you there. <laughs> And uh, just the psychology, you know, people cannot shut up. Just if I hear something, you need a complete 100% mindset when you mix. Like, I need to focus completely. And then I focus and then I might defocus, take a coffee, check something on my, my phone, unfortunately, and that kind of thing. But then when I go into mixing, I need to focus completely. I cannot have anyone in the room. But I do, however, really enjoy if a band takes the time to come in and do like a wrap-up of the mixing. Like all the mixing is already done. Anything that they would throw at me is like two-minute fix or something. Mm -hmm. But I need to do that ground-up majority of the actual work, even though if they might think that I've done 50% of the work, I've already done 95% of the work. Right, And they would come in and we can just go take one, two days to wrap the album together with some small ups and downs and some whatever effect or whatever they might want. When the new studio is complete, do you think you're going to stay focused on mixing and mastering primarily? I guess I will take it as, as it goes. If there would be interesting productions for me that I want to do that has the budget for it, and it, it's, it's chaos theory, really. There could be a year with only productions, and there could be a year with no productions, all depending on how the schedule looks and what I can fit in my schedule and, and all that. I think to stay hungry with productions, I prefer doing one, maximum three productions a year and then do mixing and mastering. So all that keeps me always hungry for, for the next thing. If I would be doing only mixing, I would throw up <laughs> on my dear compressors. Yeah. And if I would do only mastering, I would probably get bored with that as well. So, I mean, it's still sort of the same field, right? Even though, yeah, well, it is very different. Production, mixing, and mastering, all three different jobs, really. So I do enjoy trying to blend that as much as possible. But with a new studio, it will also be practically 
possible for us to do productions a little faster. Like we can have two or even three tracking setups going at the same time, uh. involving more of us here. And we are also going to have a setup where I, up until this point, it's always been me doing the productions. But the other guys are also skilled musicians and producers of their own. So hopefully I'm going to be able to involve them a little bit more in the productions as well. Let's say that comes in a band that doesn't have the full budget and then we do a deal like, okay, cool. What if I do drums, vocals, mixing, and then Linus will be tracking guitars and, and the bass and work with the keyboards with you guys, for example. How much of your work in mixing or mastering is surround-based work? Very little. I thought it would pick up, you know. I did my first surround work already back in 2004, I think. Uh -huh. I did my first surround mix. Well, it had been around for a time already, but I did my first mix back then. And everyone was talking about it. Like, when the first smartphone came along, people were talking about now. Now it's really going to pick up with the 5.1. Like, Sony had this 5.1 phone in development and all that kind of thing. But it completely blew out the other way. So instead of choosing, like, DSD um, 5.1, 7.1, uh, that kind of thing, it all went to stereo mp3 <laughs> people didn't give a shit about the quality in the end yeah yeah it's been interesting to see how the technology worked in a completely different direction than you thought it would do so the the amount of surround work for me has been declining it was peaking like 2008 i think and okay. then it's been just fewer and fewer 5.1 projects it all comes down to the consumer right and, and what they feel that they need to to get Everyone needed a 5.1 home stereo back in 15 years ago. But then, I don't know, it dropped a little bit, I suppose, and people were not really listening to music there. And then when the smartphone, the iPhone came along, everyone's listening to music this way with the AirPods in their phones. And until you get like a believable format in there, I don't think it's going to hit that broad. Hollywood might be a little different, though. Well, Jens, so great to talk to you. I really am fascinated by your whole world there in Sweden. And I really appreciate the time you've taken to speak with me today and, and answer some questions that you probably don't get asked all that often. No, no, actually, it's usually pretty technical or very band specific. So this was definitely a, a really nice, nice chat to have with you, Matt. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Will you take care and I'll see you again. See you. Thank you. Okay. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Jens Bogren here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for listening today. Want to thank all my crew, Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magical voice of Mr. Chuck Smith. Connect with me on LinkedIn, spread the word, stop by the Working Class Audio website, workingclassaudio.com. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, 
Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. 